Union Jack Radio, the home of great British comedy. On digital radio across the UK, on the Union Jack app, and on that Alexa lady. This is Jeff Lloyd's hometown glory. Today, Brian Blessed takes Jeff on a trip down memory lane on Union Jack Radio. Brian Blessed, hello. Hello. So we're here to talk about your hometown. First of all, tell me about where, where were you born? What is the hospital you were born well, in? Yes. Uh, well, yes. Well, it's nice to be talking to you. Uh, it's, uh, I was... I'm... Uh, 83. I was born in 1936 uh, at the Maxwell Montague Hospital, South Yorkshire. And you weren't a beautiful baby? I was very... very, Well, uh, my mother was horrified when I was born. These are the war years and etc. And she said, oh, God, she really was depressed. She said, oh, he looks like a toad. And I look like a toad, you know. I didn't want to come out. They had to drag me out with pliers, not pliers, what do you call them? Uh, they, 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 forceps. So they, uh, well, that's forceps, yes. that's right. And so they pulled me out, uh, and my eyes were closed. And uh, anyway, the nurse said, oh, don't worry, Mrs. Blessed, you know. She wouldn't nurse me. Oh, it's so ugly, and she wanted a girl, you know. Oh, it's so, but, yes, but wait till his eyes open. I'm sure he'll have lovely eyes. And after four days, my eyes open. He got lovely brown eyes, and so forth. Uh, oh, but she wouldn't nurse me for a while. She was depressed. And there was a woman in the next bed uh, called Madge Brindley, and she had lost her child, and she said, oh, let me nurse him. Oh, I'll nurse him. He's lovely. And so she nursed me uh, for a few days, and my eyes opened, etc. I'll jump ahead for a second. Of course, I was in Z cars in 1962 to 1965 playing Fancy Smith. Big success series. Huge. And, and a little church it was. We were rehearsing one day at BBC. Uh, and there was a, a kind of lady of about 60 uh, came in with a very scruffy-looking dog, and she was playing a tiny part, two lines, you know, and she would appear quite regularly in it. And she was sat down there, and she was quite chubby. I said, oh, uh, oh, hello, Mr. Blessed. Uh, 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 let me introduce myself. My, my name's Madge Brindley. I, I'm the woman that nursed you when you were a little babe. Wow. When, you, when your mother wouldn't nurse you. Good God, uh, hello, Madge. But I was born in Mexborough. So, uh, son, uh, the son lady of, who nursed you, you met years later again. Years later. This, I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? And, and you say that... I you, didn't know she was going to be, be an actress later on, but she, a character actress. You see her in different films. She's, you know, she'd now, play. now, you have this extraordinary memory. You claim to remember those early yes, days Yes, I do. Uh, it's, uh, I, once, I said the other day, oh, it's a bloody curse, this memory. My wife said, don't say that, Brian. It's an amazing gift. You know, uh, when I was in my uh, little boy, and there was our little uh, junior school there, infant school in Goldthorpe, uh, and we won the Totty Cup at football. I was now uh, nine years of age. Uh, and uh, the team that won the FA Cup was Manchester United in 1948. They won the Cup, beating Stanley Matthews' Blackpool 4-2. 
Uh, there was no television, and we saw these football matches on the on the news, uh, uh, Parfait News, uh, the cinemas, and there was Manchester United. We hear it on the radio. Oh, exciting! You know, so the heroes of people, you know, they were on the radio, on the news, but no television. And anyway, we're kicking the ball around. We won the Totty Cup. And a shadow bank came along, and it stopped, and these men got out, and they uh, started kicking a ball around, uh, and uh, it was Manchester United. They were going to play what? their la last game of the season, and it was a Manchester United FA Cup side. Uh, anyway, I said, you're Manchester United, are you? You're Johnny Carey, the manager? Yes, yes, we are. Said, oh, can we play you? We just won the Totty Cup. <laughs> And we beat them 26-0. It was so sweet that they let us win 26-0. And so it, it is. I don't know why I've got it. And so you, therefore, you I, can in, I can bring it back instantly and details and conversations. But even, so, even being a baby, you can remember being a baby, you claim. I, I could, yes. I remember being a baby. So what do you remember about being a well, baby? Well, I remember kind of I was born. Uh, this sounds very fantastical. My first sensation as a human being was that I felt I was born in ice. That I was surrounded by ice. Right. I've done many adventures, haven't I? Everest and this and that. But as a child, I remember and breaking through the ice. And I remember he hearing my mother go, 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 and things like that. Uh, you know, and Heidi, she used to say, Heidi, 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 and wave to me. So I remember their dialogue and what they said. And how many of uh, these... I, I mean, so my memory goes back to birth, uh, to being born. I remember being born. I remember seeing their faces. You do not. Seriously? Oh, yes, yes, I do. Yes, yes. You remember oh, yes. seeing the look of horror on your mother's face when I, this I remember it ugly all. baby oh, yes. toad came out? I, I, no, I remember it all very, very clearly. The, um, and then, of course, my mother adored me. I mean, what happened was this rather ugly baby that looked like a toad. Eventually, I got kind of blonde, curly hair uh, and uh, the big brown eyes, and I became very handsome. Like so cherub. my mother w went around all the... She used to hide me, but now, after three months, she couldn't show me off enough, and she would go around into the main street, look at my baby, look at Brian, come on, Brian. And I looked absolutely gorgeous. And, and of course, as my wife suggested, you've gone bloody back again. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> do, do you know if you always had a loud voice? Yes. Uh, my, my voice never broke. Uh, I, I, you know, that I had this colossal voice as a child. It was mentioned at the school, uh, extraordinary lungs. I bet my, my uh, lungs are twice the normal size. Wow. I suppose that's why I can climb Everest uh, as an old man. So I've got the huge lungs. And my voice gets more powerful. That's what I find at the moment. You know, I did. I played Pavarotti, uh, and I did Stars and Arrows, and you know, and I said, well, I'll do it all right, I'll do it, you know. Uh, I met Pavarotti, and uh, everyone called him Maestro, because he was just so unique. And, but I remember, I, 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 the makeup was fantastic, uh, I, I had a, a wonderful black wig, and the, I just looked like him. So when I came through the mist, you actually, this is the best ever, I looked just like Pavarotti. And I could my God, I could see a big f screen. Now I was on it, and I thought, Pavarotti's here, and it was me. Anyway, I don't uh, destroy your microphone, uh, but I, I came on and through the mist, and everybody cheered, and then they stopped cheering. That Well, he looks like him, but he'll never sound like him. I think it was a shock when I said, uh, Mono 
Dio cielo, chi è bello in me? Oh, solo me. And I was off. Wow. And I sang it, because I won. And I sang. But I was trained operatically at Bristol Olympic Theatre School. I'm jumping the gun. Well, I'll you get to that in a minute. Can, I'll tell you what, because yeah. of my career, I had to choose uh, uh, between opera and acting. We'll come to that in a minute. Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack Radio. Anyway, there I was, uh, born in Mexborough, lived in Goforth. Well, what, was, what, was what was the address of the house you lived in? It was, in uh, it was called uh, the, uh, 36. And can you describe it to me? Uh, well, it was uh, lovely. It had a lovely front garden uh, and all the connected terrace houses had. Uh, all miners. My dad was a coal hewer, eight tons a day to 20, 18 tons a day removed uh, onto conveyor belt the hardest work of the coal mines and they were all miners so it was a kind of rhythmic thing at night a ritual to see the miners come out on the day shift and the night shift uh, and 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 the the gas lights uh, etc we had these gas lamps and so forth and smog and fog everywhere I, we lived Goforth was between Barnsley and Doncaster and I mean to think it was a great area for coal mining so you had Mambas and Barnborough and places and Darfield and thousands of between underneath your feet were coal miners working down there in the depths, a thousand, two thousand feet down, some of the deepest coal mines of the Barnsley bed. And I'd see my father coming, and I'd be six years of age, or four or five years. I'd see my father coming down the road. Thank God he was alive still. He did, he, did he talk about what he saw in the mines? Oh, it's yes. a dangerous place to it work. Was. But to see him come, he looked like Hector at the gates of Troy. I mean, the, 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 the gas lamp, and there was no bath, so he's black. And the helmet on lit. And he picked me up because he played for the Yorkshire second team at cricket on the weekends, opening fast bowler. I my hero, my dad. And he picked me up. Hello then, Brian, lad. What you got here? I said, well, I'm reading the Beano and, and the, the amazing Mr. X. And oh, come here, lad. And we went into the into Property Avenue, into our 36. There's a sitting room. And it was uh, like an Ovaltini's advert. Uh, you know, there was a big fire and the kettle on the fire, uh, etc. Uh, and the wooden radio, Bush radio. And my dad would go into the bathroom. It had no enamel. As no pit baths, and he'd strip off, and I'd wash his back, and he was pristine and white body. You know, bodies can look very good with a bit of suntan, but to see a white body looking so powerful, and so it, it, that was a kind of atmosphere. Because my mother was like all mothers, a marvelous mother. You know, the strength of mankind is its women, uh, and, and and my mother was just wonderful. To and the radio, you had the Lost World and the Curtain Up and Saturday Night Theatre, and so they're exciting times. What was amazing was all the coal miners in their thousands at the weekends, they put on plays. They put on musicals. Right. They put on operas. The, my, my dad knew the whole of Hamlet. Well, talk talk and, to and me about this. Were, just... The coal miners could quote Julius Caesar or anything. And so, you know, I used to see all this, uh, you know, and... Uh, because it was a tremendous influence on me, uh, the drama of it all, and space. I uh, you had the War of the Worlds uh, on the radio, and then I discovered that actually Mars existed. I was so excited about other worlds because I, you know, I thought they'd been painted the stars. You know, they'd been put up there and painted. And that's where this lifelong love of space oh, comes my from. My biggest love in life is space. Uh, 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 
much more than acting. I mean, acting, I could act, and I love acting. Actors are very boring when they talk about acting because I think that acting is a must. Good, bad, or indifferent, you must do it. It's a must. It's a great art. Can I ask you some more about your home life? I want to I know about your dad. I want to know about how he talked about his, his, his work in the mines and the people he worked with. But also, I know there are a lot of uncles around. Yes. And it's not necessarily what people might think when they think of a family of miners in Yorkshire. Yes. But what I found out with coal miners is the vast majority were exceedingly clever. They were brilliant mathematicians. They were brilliant artists. Any of them could have taken up acting or anything or any, and many did take up the arts in all kinds of ways. But they were incredibly gifted, amazingly clever. Um, to think, I mean, that my father, uh, most of them did, as a coal hewer. Uh, my father, as I said, he knew the whole of Hamlet. He knew that Julius Caesar and this, that, and the other. Where was that coming uh, from? Was that coming from what they'd learned? Oh, at I know, from, from from parents and a great right. love of theatre, and and the radio was so staggering. You had Prospero on uh, in the Tempest once a week. Besides Paul Temple, that was a kind of easy stuff. But Saturday night theatre would be, tre- you know, be Treasure Island, Long John Silver, and so forth. Or, uh, you know, or Daniel Defoe and uh, authors like that. So we're being constantly constantly kind of educated with art on it. And the cinemas were full. There were two cinemas in the village. They were the war years. I don't know why they weren't blown up. Actually, you had Flash Gordon. We'll talk about that later. In black and white, you bust a crab once a week. But you had wonderful films. The be- best ever, Jungle Book. Which was the film- first, first film you ever saw. Oh, to see Jungle Book with, with, with Sabu. What do you remember about going to see this? Uh, to go to the cinema for the first time? Well, I, I, I you know, I used to sneak up and and, and 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 get behind the curtains and see the films I shouldn't see, like Frankenstein and things like that. They absolutely scared the bloody life out of me. Boris Karloff with those black and white colours and shapes. And your dad but but picked, my, my dad, but my, I remember my dad. You. Everybody once. I was only a kid. I was only six. And everyone was talking about Bambi. And it was on the Empire. And then something else was on at the pit, at the cinema nearby. But I said, I'm going to take you to the cinema, which he did all the time. And we got just halfway between the Empire and the picture house. And he said, we're not going to see Bambi. Oh, I was heartbroken. Dad, dad, dad. Trust me. And we went to the cinema and there was the usual Tom and Jerry, etc. The curtains opened, and there was Alexander Corder's Jungle Book. I mean, nothing. These Jungle Books at the moment don't compare. These are real animals. The actors were from Orson Welles's company. So, uh, uh, a brilliant actor. Sabu was an incredible Mowgli. He was a wonderful Mowgli. The tiger, Shakan was amazing. And Bagheera. I've kept black panthers and nursed them. Bagheera, the black panther. Hang on, you've kept black panthers? I'll tell you in a while, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so this, uh, they're, they're rescuing them. Yeah. And this, there was, you know, because they don't, they don't make a roar, black panther. And, and, and Bagheera in the film with Sabu and Cordes filmed the colours and the acting and the reality. So real. You go, <laughs> they semi-cough black panther. <laughs> Oh, Bagheera, your claws are sharper than ever. You look wonderful. (coughs) With the orange (coughs) eyes. Bagheera. And it was, I was transfixed. And it changed my life. 
So I trusted him. He was right. So that gave uh, you Bambi, a love of... Bambi was pretty uh, kind of, you know, good, but didn't compare to the seeing the Indian forest, to seeing wolves, to seeing a giant snake, to seeing this done with such reality. The, the, the Mowgli was, he was so amazing, Sabu. And, and what did that instill in you? Was it a love of film or was it an idea of what was out there in the world oh, to be explored? Oh, I just dreamt one day of being an adult so I could go there. Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack Radio. We've got so many, and, well, I mean, so well, many my, things to come well, back to. We've got to come back to that. You kept Black, Black Panthers. This is very interesting. Uh, yes, to me. well, uh, I, I, I'll come to that in a second. And saying that I did a lot of work in the sixties. Uh, you know, you could get you could get an elephant at Harrods. It was awful. You could get a lion from Harrods. You could buy one. In, uh, you could have tomorrow a lion delivered to your house. Wow. They they they, they, uh, they bragged about it, Harrods. You know. So I went to, uh, along with Jeffrey Bosworth and people like that. In I lived in Rich at the time, Richmond, London. And I had uh, uh, different cages built. I had a huge garden there. It was about a third of an acre, uh, halfway up Richmond Hill. And the property was very cheap. Uh, These cages were full of plants and God knows what. And we went around the country rescuing animals. That's why you hear, now and again you hear in the newspaper, someone's seen a black panther in Wales or Somerset or whatever it is, or a, a, a puma or something like that. It's because they're the offspring. People bought them. See, these then they are... bloody escaped. That's why they're in the country, some of them. But we went around the country collecting them, cheetahs and all kinds of things, and sending them back to the country of origin. The Minister of Agriculture and Fisheries, uh, they gave me quarantine. So we took these animals, and so I'd have, I'd have baby tigers and God knows what, I'd have them in there in these big cages with lots, and he'd and stay there for a few days. And one day bottles. I came back, you know, my father, my father did some painting for me once when I was in Z cars. Uh, and he was in the house, and I said, "Dad, I've got—I've never said thank you for taking me to see Jungle Book. Come downstairs, will you? Yeah, yeah, but it was a huge kitchen with a big oak table, and a man called Nyoka uh, was an animal trainer, actually. Uh, uh, and uh, come in, Dad. Don't be scared. This is Carly, and it was a great." full-grown female black panther. Wow. It had green eyes. And it was on the table, and I just turned it over on its back. It was used to human beings from being a baby. And I had a brush. Come on, feel it, and rub your hands up and... <laughs> Stroke its belly. Stroke its belly, Dad. <gasps> there you are. She's lovely, see? She's very, very tame. I want to say thank you, Dad for taking me to see Jungle Book. Here you are, holding a fully grown black panther. Amazing. How did he react? Well, he was in tears. And scared. Huge. Uh, it was taken back to the country of origin, I might say, Carly, and was taken back to India, you know. Uh, and so, But we, I went around the country collecting with Bosworth and other people. Uh, we collected all these animals, uh, ocelots, margays, jungle cats, golden cats, all kinds of things like that, and sent them back to the, uh, the country of origin. Unbelievable. Now you don't have to do that. Uh, but uh, in those days, Harrods did this frightful service. <laughs> could order any animal you wanted and they couldn't get the bucker. You know, it was terrible, terrible, bloody. And let's go back to Goldthorpe. Yeah. What, what was your first infant school? 
Where did it was the first school you remember going to? Do you remember your first day at school? Well, then I'll get back to my dad quickly yes. on 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 uh, coal mining. So my dad, you know, uh, he would take me swimming and take me to the cinema and this, that and the other. And But my mother and I, you, no one had a minute's peace once he was a coal miner. My dad, uh, and down there people were burned, people were killed. My dad worked on the Barnsley bed. My dad was a hero to everybody. He, um, he, he... Close the Barnsley bed. The Barnsley bed is a huge big scene going right across South Yorkshire. Gigantic from Hickle to Main Pit. My dad down there's a coal hewer. And and suddenly he was down there with a man called Bennett and he sensed gas. Now, uh, carbon monoxide. He, he, sm- he smelled gas. Uh, yeah, he sensed it. He got his lamp and everything else, his Davy lamp, and he sensed uh, uh, carbon monoxide. <laughs> carbon dioxide, he said, Brian, it can kill you in seconds. And I sensed it. I said, get down in your bellies, because it goes high. There was a big tunnel. It goes high. Crawl back, crawl back. And he knew 300 men were coming down. They would have been killed in seconds. They would have been killed in seconds by the gas. And he said, Let's get, get down, lads, on your bellies. Carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide. And they edged their way out, feeling very ill. And he saved all their lives. And he closed the Barnsley bed, which was worth a lot of money. But the gas was seeping out. Uh, A few weeks later, he was gassed himself. He came home and was blue. His face was blue. They carried him in. He recovered from that. And then uh, they told me, you know, your dad's astonishing. There was a roof fall. And four men were killed, and then five were crushed underneath. And it was hanging from the roof, all the boulders, Brian. And your dad, you know, if you get underneath there, and any more of the boulders can come down, you're flattened. And he lifted boulders with levers, with gradually three or four other miners, and he rescued the four or five miners. But he was hit by a boulder rescuing them and broke his hips, which is a dangerous thing to break. Uh, and uh, he was in he was in hospital for weeks and then uh, fighting for his life. Uh, and then they took him to Furbright for special treatment for another year, uh, etc. He, he just, this is not very cheerful, but he once said to me, you know, very quietly, Brian, if you ever, as an actor, have to do a scene where a man is horrifically ill in a coal mine or anything, or in industry anywhere, uh, with the steelworks, anything, don't do anything. Don't express anything. Wait a I've just experienced the worst of my life, experience of my life. I work alongside a conveyor belt, Brian. It has holes in it, and we're in compartments, the miners, and you shovel out onto the conveyor belt all day long, and you shovel, you know, eight tons or 12 tons or more. And next to me in a cubicle was a guy of 21. His wife had just had a baby, and she was having another. And you threw big pieces of coal onto the conveyor belt, and sometimes it would be falling off. So you'd put your boot on them to make sure it didn't fall off. But there were holes in it. And he did it, and his foot went through one of the holes. And this man, next to me, Dad, and he hopped along with it, and then his other foot got round a wooden pit prop. This will make your listeners squirm. I'm squirming. And it started to 
pull him apart, spread eagle him. Oh, and my dad shouted, cut the thing off! Cut the conveyor belt off! And they did, but it's too late. <sighs> and it pulled, it, all his guts fell out. Oh, God. It tore him apart. And all his guts fell onto the floor. My dad said, he's in shock. I've got a coat here. Put it round, put him round. And he sat there. Can I have a cigarette, he said to my dad. Yeah, yeah, you are. Here, have a thing. And he, he said, oh, dear. You know, Marjorie, she said this baby, and I don't, oh, she'll be so worried, and she's having another. Oh, can you tell her, I'm, I'm sorry this has happened, because, and he was dead. I said, oh. all he talked about was his wife. He didn't scream. All his guts had fallen out. Oh. He had no guts. And yet he was still alive. The heart was still moving. And he just went, just tell her, will you? So if you do, you know, people die on television, like, you know, like, like the, it's a bloody earthquake down there. I said, oh, no, oh, no. I've never seen a coal miner not die, but quietly. Anyway, that's, that's cheered you up. Do you think I? he was traumatised? You think your dad was traumatised by seeing things like that? Well, I mean, you know, so that he was a, Kenny was a man of the people and, and, and he was adored, my dad. And I was, uh, you know, he lived a extraordinary things that he, uh, you know, there you could get silicosis and pneumoniocus from all the dust and so forth. You had, you know, I was thinking of those tunnels down below my house where they all worked and you had shop firers and main gate rippers. With those machines tearing into the into the coal mine seams, Jesus Christ! I mean, they had to work so hard for their money. You see, and of course, I, uh, I, uh, my dad was injured uh, for a year. I had to kind of leave school at fourteen, fourteen and three quarters. I was going to be school captain and football and boxing and everything. And I was doing so well at drama. We had such wonderful teachers, dramatic teachers. So. And I had to leave. Uh, the only job I could get was an undertaker's assistant making coffins. I had to work because uh, my dad now, from earning £14 a week on sick pay, he was on 16 shillings a week. Uh, and we had a little, my little brother, a little baby boy, about six or seven. Uh, and uh, so I had to kind of leave school and 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 and, and get the job of uh, undertaker's undertaker's assistant making coffins. So I mean, we, and, that, and then my uncles helped my dad as well. They gave a bit of money. My uncle Tom, all my uncles were brilliant minds. My uncle George was head of the, became the head of the Royal Liver Society. My uncle uh, Alan became the manager of a coal mine. You know, to be a manager is harder than getting into a university. Yeah, I mean, to be a manager to learn. The, it was a brilliant mind. My dad taught him actually. My dad was the only one who remained a kind of just simple coal miner with the men, looking after the men. Uh, but he actually trained my uncle Alan to be a manager, and so forth. Yeah, this. And my dad was so good with men that the uh, Australian Coal Board offered him uh, to be a manager of a pit in Australia, and we almost went to Australia. Wow! My mother wanted to go. My dad said, "I, I can't leave all my friends and things like that." But he was offered, so I had to become an Australian. Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack Radio. Roll up, roll up. Welcome to Union Jack Radio, a radio station playing just the best of British music. 
Hardy. Don't panic, you stupid little plonk. Don't mention the war. I have a cunning plan. He's not the first. He's a very naughty boy. And absolutely mad listeners. Union Jack, you're right, plonker. Fee, fi, fo, fum. Union Jack's a load of fun. Bloke stopped me the other day. He said, excuse me, mate, is there a and q in Wigan? I said, no, pal. W-I-G-A-N. <laughs> Fastest growing station in the UK. And every song's picked by the listener on the Union Jack app. 20 million votes and counting. Union Jack Radio. Playing the best of British and doing radio differently. Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack Radio. Tell me about the schools you went to. The first school you went to, the infant school. Well, the first infant school I went to, it was Highgate Junior Mixed. Now, not Highgate in London. It's between, it's connected with Goforp between Doncaster and Basel. It's called Highgate Junior Mixed. There are many Highgates. It's a wonderful school. We had fine teachers and so forth. I was kind of renowned always as a fighter. Uh, eventually, uh, I won't digress, but when I became... 15, uh, the British Boxing Board the, uh, of Control uh, and, um, and Norris and the whole head of the Boxing Association of Yorkshire uh, wanted me to be, a, they said, we can train you, you become a light heavyweight or you become a heavyweight. We've never seen anyone fight and box with such power. And so I was cock of the school. I could uh, uh, defeat bullies and protect uh, people who were being bullied. I became quite heroic. Uh, they're all natural fighters, for bless us, but I had tremendous left hand, hook, right. And we had the, the British Empire and European heavyweight champion, Bruce Woodcock, in the next village. The great Woodcock, you know, uh, won his first 21 fights inside uh, uh, four rounds. Uh, Joe Lewis said it was the best heavyweight I ever saw in my life was Bruce Woodcock. And I trained with him and things like that. But I was a natural actor and so forth. My mother was so worried about my fighting. Anyway, I, I digress, don't I? And so I was at this very junior, uh, this infant school, Highgate. What sort of a uh, you, and, you, You're and, a fighter. Uh, you are you interested in acting uh, at that young age? Oh, well, I, I, well, I'm totally ignorant, but it, I was in my love of space. You know, of course, I because it was on the radio, the Lost World, and things like that, and Angry Red Planet, and things like that. I was, but but, but I was always known slightly as a, an oddity as well in the fact that we had the air raid shelters in our garden. I had my aquariums in there. I had great crested newts in there, smooth newts. There no insecticides and in the fields all around us, massive amount of fields, you get handfuls of frogs and handfuls of, of, of newts, which are not there now because they've been destroyed. And I had an aquarium with, with big, great crested newts, really big ones with scales on their backs. And I was known as Baron Frankenstein by people, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, also I loaded half of the, because no one went in there, my parents did, uh, the Anderson Air Raid Shelter. I half filled it uh, with um, German helmets from a dump nearby and French helmets and British helmets and bayonets and all that. And uh, the police were searching for them everywhere, you know. The, <laughs> and I had all those in there, about 30 or 40 of them. Them, you know, marvellous, collected, because I'd seen them in the films, hadn't I? The, my favourite element, uh, helmet, was a German helmet. It was black and powerful, you know, you could you could put a cork on your face, burn it, and make a moustache on your face like Hitler.
Hitler put on a helmet and I walk up and down the road as bloody Adolf Hitler. <laughs> but, I mean, so, but I was not as bad on Frankenstein because of my interest in newts. And as I put in charge of the aquarium in... So, so a fighter, you know, always fighting. I'm like, well, you stop fighting, Brian. I had eaten all over my legs from the kicks I got on this, that, and the other. All healthy stuff. Everyone fought and so forth. But I was in charge of the aquariums at the school. Now, we had a headmistress called Mrs. Jarman. Have you ever heard this? No. no. Well, we had very good teachers. Mrs. Gummersill, who introduced me to Mars. Uh, but Mrs. Jarman was about six feet, broad-shouldered, and so forth, and quite a fierce woman, and I thought, very cruel. Uh, anyway, uh, I uh, one day found a huge bloody toad, uh, a brilliant big toad. I mean, really massive. It had yellow colours. You, know, you, you did get that. And I put it in there. I was so excited. I came running down the corridor. I'd found it in the pond nearby and put it in the aquarium and so forth. And I left mud on in the corridors. And she was absolutely out of her mind furious. She was always belting people, caning them and hitting them with a slipper. Don't forget, I was cock of the school, even at that age. Best fighter. Everyone adored me. Uh, looked up to me. And she said, look at this, you disgusting, you disgusting boy. What are you doing? Look at the corridor. So I bring you this toad in our sex. I never mind. I want the aquarium got rid of. And she had it got rid of and thrown into the fields. And people were learning so much from the aquarium. And, they, and she told him, this, this dirty, he's let down the school, he's down, down the corridors. And in front of the school, she leathered me with slippers, plimsolls, uh, which were on a bare leg. Uh, we get nothing out of me, being so brave. I mean, he, she made kids howl. She hit them at the side of the head as well. It's unheard of now. Mrs. Jarman. And she belted me about 40 times on the bloody legs in front of the school. My face is red. Bugger all out of me, I thought. Anyway, I talked about these ammunition dumps nearby, the American ammunition dumps. And out of these ammunition dumps, you know what kids are like, I built myself a magnificent catapult with leather, big handle, and kids are so accurate, and pebbles and rocks, and I could hit somebody from 200 yards away. Really bloody good. I got a real, I made a really big one with the wonderful elastic on it. And she, Mrs. Jarman, was going home as she had to go to Swinton nearby up a hill. Lots of bushes, lots of trees. And as she was passing, she always had to lift her ass up in the air as she went up the hill. And I was behind a bush, and I got a good bead on her ass. <laughs> Bang! And she, <laughs> and she fell off the bloody bike and down the embankment. <laughs> and she had a bruise on her ass as big as a pancake. <laughs> she came to school there and said, someone oh, have done this, who has done this? Find out who's done it. And it happened to her two or three times. And she brought the police in. And, and I said, Mrs. Jarman, I must help you on this. We don't want this in the school. I became a hero. <laughs> and she was astonished because she'd been so awful to me that I should help. So I led the gangs to find out the Phantom. <laughs> I was, it was this guy who, whoever did this was known as the Phantom. <laughs> We'll find that phantom. <laughs> and, I said, I, and, and she said, well, bless it, it looks like you uh, and your gang have succeeded. No one's attacked me now for six weeks. I thought, oh, haven't they? <laughs> oh, six weeks have gone by, have they? So you're safe, are you? You b***h. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so the next day, she's going up the hill and she gets the same treatment. And I kept that up for six months. And to this day, she never knew who it bloody was. <laughs> she was a right. <laughs> What about- but my teachers were marvellous, uh, imaginative and so forth. You know, and I was at the, the infant school, as I said, and uh, we had the radios and wonderful. Uh, uh, they were just, my dad was a bowling champion on the bowling greens, crown green bowling, you know. Eventually, I'd be his partner on the bowling greens when I got to 12 years of age. But really, they're all champions. I don't know why it's been taken off television, crown green bowling. It's much better than flat green, but it's much more skillful. And my dad was a semi-finalist uh, in Yorkshire, uh, and then I think he won it once and, and other things he won. And, it, and I could partner him at times, which was uh, wonderful. And if I was too strong when I was bowling, when I was 14, 15 years of age, you know, I or you get a thousand people around the bowling green watching. They'd shout to my dad, it was called Bill. Bill, Bill, they're feeding him too much. <laughs> <laughs> then if I, I was short to the jack, are they feeding him? <laughs> He's got no bloody strength. I mean, they were all, they had these wonderful old men watching. You know. well, that's that's so, the Yorkshire sense of humour, right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. You know, their humour was, you know, you get an old man, you know. I remember my dad when he became. 99 years of age. I said, what's it like being old? He said, I don't know what old is, Brian. I said, I'm not part of the E club. What are you talking about, Dad? He said, well, the old men sit together, you know, and then a beautiful woman comes by and the wind catches her skirt and she looks gorgeous and they go, E, what I could do to her when I was young. So I'm not part of the E club. I could do it now. I've lost it, you know, Brian. You don't lose it. <laughs> really, Dad? Said no, I'm all right. I can still, I can still get a stalk. I'm still there. <laughs> and of course, you know, he lived. That's ninety nine, and he's saying this to he, you. He died at he died at ninety nine. He, he, he just sat in his chair, and, he, and I'd left him that day and come back to London, and I said, your dad's dead. But I've just left him. I've just left him. I've still got his ashes. I can't spread them somehow. You know, I've got I've got his ashes. You know what I mean? Uh, but he lived with my mother's eighty-seven. But all all my uncles lived into their late nineties. So you got good genes. Well, I'm eighty-three, and I am bench pressing between two hundred and three hundred and fifty pounds because of my space training and this that, and the other, and my mountaineering. So I train every day, not out of vanity, uh, to keep fit for the projects I want to do. Jeff Lloyd's hometown glory on Union Jack Radio. What about crushes? Who was who was the first girl you fell in love with who broke your tiny heart? Well, I uh, I'll I'll start by saying that you know, because you you always saw little girls at school and so forth, and who you liked, but I, I hadn't got a crush and so forth, and I didn't know fully what it was like who to fully you'd see a, a woman who was very attractive and lovely and you might date her and go and etc but i wasn't much for dancing and all that i i was I said baron frankenstein I, I tended to be the man from mars i played football and the girls would be on the line because uh, i was captain of the team and uh we, we we won the south yorkshire championship and i'd be on the right wing which uh you know would take you off the pitch now and again and the girls were all along there and they'd feel my ass as i was going but yeah he's got a very firm ass and i'd blush and of course uh, turn into a red martian i was so embarrassed <laughs> but i d- oh, th- talking about drama you see now where i lived therefore in in Gofor, Probert avenue 
I said about all the coal miners putting on plays. And in the next village was Patrick Stewart, Jean-Luc Picard of Star Trek. Uh, Judy Dench was further in Sheffield and Kenneth Haig. And Keith Barron was in Mexborough. Very clever actor, Keith, you know. Uh, and uh, we never worked together. We should. We always got on marvelously. Uh, anyway, Patrick and I, Patrick was two years younger than me, so I used to kind of guide him, guide him a lot, and get him into trouble, and, and robbing orchards, and God knows what. Oh, Brian, Brian. Whenever I see him, he's always scared, if I'm going to die. You're going to die, Brian. You're going to die. <laughs> I'm not going to die, you silly sod. <laughs> I cannot comprehend, by the way, how Patrick, Patrick is bald, ugly, and looks like Fu Manchu, and he's a sex symbol. <laughs> so I could never fancy Patrick in a million years. Oh, stop it, Brian. Stop. Oh, Brian, stop it. So if, oh, yes, Brian, yes. Oh, yeah. You're still ugly. You're still, you've got no talent whatsoever. Oh, Brian, stop it, Brian. Stop it, Brian. Stop it, Brian. So I've always teased the, I've always teased him to bloody death. But anyway, Patrick and I saw these shows, you know. And then we went on weekend drama course in the Calder Valley High School, and they had a week's drama course. Now, we were working with the amateur theatres at the time, Patrick and I. I was with the Mexborough Theatre Guild. He was with uh, someone in Dewsbury. This course, and on this course were some of the greatest teachers in Britain. They had to educationally help the country. A man called Rudy Shelley, a great movement teacher. Uh, Ruth Winoy, and all kinds of different people. And General Tyler, the drama advisor. Gilgood and Olivier went to see him for advice. And they were putting on little sections of plays, a bit of Greek theatre, a bit of Shakespeare, a bit of the... With all the students. I arrived for the first time with people of my age, because I'd always been with adults. Or lonely, being Baron Frankenstein. And here were people of my same age, uh, girls and, and boys. You know, and Patrick said, oh, it's wonderful. Oh, Brian, it's wonderful. Look at it. It's just going to be wonderful. Patrick, you know, almost tears in his eyes. We walked up the hill to the entrance. Anyway, it was all wonderful. And I was cast because I was having speech lessons and all things. I got the lead in his civilian and I got the angel Gabriel uh, and then I got, I got some comedy de latte and I played leads. I was offered leads because of the read-throughs. Everyone was impressed by me. Patrick was saying, you're doing well, Brian. Oh, uh, that's a great part you got there and all this. And we were so rehearsed. Uh, anyway, I, I went for a costume fitting and uh, fitting the legs and fitting this for the villain. And then I realized, you know, that I was actually in a room full of women. Uh, the ladies are all doing costumes. And I, I'd never been with a gang of women. I remember the window opening and the cold air coming from Wuthering Heights. And I heard this voice say, Oh, you remind me of James Mason. I think he's wonderful. And I turned round. And there was this vision in front of me. And they have little clocks going off in the Calder Valley High School. It goes click, click, and they stopped somehow. And the wind stopped. And everything stopped. And I turned and looked at this girl of 16. 16 and a half. Black curly hair like Kathy in Wuthering Heights. Black eyes like prisms. A delicate face, pale, a lovely sugar barley dress on her, and the most beautiful voice, and a long trailing laugh, tinkle bell laugh, laughing away. 
And I looked at her, and I was shattered. And, I, and everyone looked at me, the girls, and I said, I don't really see myself as James Mason. I, I, I said, sorry, I'd better leave. Then she was in every play I did. She had been cast in the other play. A very fine actress. I walked with her, just talking to her two days later, going to have our coffee at tea time and so forth. And she went into a corner, played a bit of music on a piano. She was so gifted. Fleur de Lis, I think it was. And then uh, she looked at me and said, would you like me to do St. Joan for you? And she did the lovely St. Joan speech, um, George Bernard Shaw, St. Joan, you know, about light your fires. Jesus Christ, she did so amazing. Christ, I would have felt so in love. Every cell in my body was changed. And I knew she loved me. We held hands. I went and had coffee. And she, I'd buy her side then every day for rehearsals. And I, I couldn't eat. I had difficulty having breakfast. Couldn't eat. Everyone noticed it. I climbed up into because they were separated from us, and I climbed up the building and entered the girls' ward late at night to sit by a bed with all the girls listening in their beds, some poetry. You know, and in came the matron. Uh, they hid me under the bed, etc. Ruth Winnowing came in as well, the all-knowing Ruth Winnowing. And the next morning, I, I remember while they were, the girls were giggling with laughter because I was under the bed and the matron was telling them the facts of life and they were all <laughs> laughing because I was there listening to it. <laughs> and I felt my foot being pushed under the bed. Obviously, it had been sticking out. And it was Ruth Winnowing pushing my foot <laughs> under the bed. And the next morning, I breath, hello, hello, Brian. Did you have a nice evening? Yeah, yes, I did. Thank you very much. And then she never, never said a word. <laughs> but we, uh, that, that was it. And she was called Nancy Marshall. I tried to persuade her to be an actress. Uh, and uh, I think if I could have grabbed her and taken her to Gretna Green, I would have done. I was wow. Only, I was only 16 and a half, and she was 16 and a half. But I, I would have. And we are both... She, she talked about marriage. We, we talked about marriage. We talked about nothing else. I was, I, I, I was shaking, shaking, shaking with love for her. This delicacy, this beauty. And, and he, uh, we did the play, etc. Then, you know, we uh, afterwards we met 10 weeks later at the Brighouse Children's Theatre Garden Party. And we, all the cast met up there. Sounds so sweet, doesn't it? And there she was in the same dress. And she, the, the girls didn't move forward and the boys didn't move forward. And I took this step with great courage forward and moved straight across to Nancy and took her hand. And that evening we watched Rough Company with um, Barbara Stanwyck in the leading part. And we sat there, all of us, watching this film uh, in Brickhouse. And she just simply turned to me and said... Uh, I love you. And I laughed a bit. She, don't laugh. Don't laugh. Please don't laugh. And, you know, I, I would have just wanted to marry her and go off. But, of course, everything, everything was against us. Eventually, she was going to go to college. She wanted to be a teacher. 
not an actress. And I had to do my national bloody service in the parachute regiment. And and, uh, I only saw her once after that. Things that we met at Round A Park, we realized that everything was we're being pulled apart because of national service and they're going to college and so forth and this, that, and the other. And uh, about three years ago, I was uh, doing a big advertising campaign throughout the country for animals and all kinds of things. I was on a bus and it stopped in Preston. And a, 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 a young girl came forward and said, "Oh, hello, Mister Blessed. I, I, I'm uh, I'm related to Nancy Marshall. You knew her. Ah, oh, ah. Oh, oh. And crowds of people were around. You see, crowds of people. Uh, yes. Would you like to speak to her? Yeah, yeah. Click, click. And there she had that selfie telephone, which I never yeah. use. There you are. Hello." Hello? Is that Nancy? Yes. And then we conversed for five minutes, and then the crowds took over and I had to hand it back. What an extraordinary moment to have had after all those years. I just... Uh, but but you, you, it is always said of your first love that you... Uh, uh, you get over it, but you never forget it. Well, it sounds like you've, you've remembered I every last detail. I'm still in love with her. You know what I mean? I'm still, yeah. still in love with her. Uh, but, but anyway, we went to all those drama courses, and then eventually I went to the Bristol Vic Theatre School, uh, which that's one the one I wanted to go to, and Patrick, but he was two years behind me, Patrick. Uh, and I got to the Bristol Vic Theatre School, uh, and it was wonderful because I could complete my education because you had the university drama department, you had the school uh, and you had the Brislavic Theatre Company, and you weren't allowed to mix with it. And it, I've never seen acting like it was in the Brislavic Theatre. And the lead was Peter O'Toole, and he was astonishing. O'Toole challenged me, and one day we ran at three o'clock in the morning from Lee Woods across the suspension bridge onto Clifton Downs. And there we met two professors, Professor Josephs and Professor Murray, who were crying their eyes out. They'd been to see Gielgud in The Seven Ages of Man. Oh, he's wonderful. Oh, oh. Yeah, such a phenomenal grasp of the verse. You must go and see him, you boys. You must go and see him. And they cried and cried and cried. And then they walked away. And O'Toole said to me, it's amazing, isn't it? They're so enamored of Sir John Gielgud. They fail to realize that both you and I are bollock naked. (laughs) 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 We'd run as a... Test! Dare you! Run with me, Brian! Across the suspension bridge! Bare f- naked! <laughs> but the end of the f- blue! Oh. We were bollock naked! Brian, we're going to have to press pause here, but I, f- I feel that we should do this again because we, yes, we yes. barely scratched the surface. Thank you so no, much no, no, no. for taking us around well, your hometown. I, 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 I said my biggest love is space, and I've, I've completed space training, which is wonderful. I, mean, I love acting. Acting is a must. Good, bad, or indifferent, you must do it. Well, much more to talk about next time. Yeah. For now, Brian Blessed, well, thank you so well, much for showing us around your well, hometown. Th- well, thanks for a lovely interview. Jeff Lloyd's Hometown Glory on Union Jack Radio.